I've been asked to give a kind of introductory overview of Thomas Aquinas's understanding of our free agency. So that's what I'm going to do this morning in the time that I have. What I'd like to do is proceed in the same mode that St. Thomas recommends we proceed when we're developing a science or our understanding of a certain topic matter. The first thing we need to do is ask whether there is such a thing as free will or free agency. And we know that today we live in a society in which there are many people who simply deny that there is such a thing as free will. St. Thomas doesn't have uh, an extensive discussion in terms of an argument that we have free will. Uh, he takes it something of a given, but he does have a kind of elaboration of a sort of argument that we have free will. The gist of it I've put on the board over here on your right, which is the quote, human beings have free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In other words, those uh, activities, counseling, exhorting, commanding, prohibiting, rewarding, and punishing would be senseless. We wouldn't be able to understand them, or worse, they'd be a kind of external form of control over people if they were not in some way an appeal to a capacity we have as rational to make free choices. Aquinas thinks it's more or less a given that those things are not in vain, and so he thinks we have free will. That's a kind of argument that he gives. We can discuss that in more detail later on if you'd like, but we'll take it as a given in here that we have free will. The question becomes, what are its properties and what is it? In order to know what it is, the essence of free will, let's take a moment to consider its properties and let's start with our experience of free will. For a lot of people today, we experience our free will, I guess you could say the ordinary way we experience or, or live it, is as an ability to opt for something. You go into a restaurant, for example, a menu is set before you, and you have a whole set of options. And what you do is you, you opt for one of the options that are set before you. Or you go to, uh, you to buy a car, uh, there's a number of options set before you on the lot, and, and different types of models and makes, and you opt for one vehicle or another. You go to a supermarket and many options are set before you and you simply opt for this or that. That's how we tend to think of our freedom or our free will is as this ability to simply opt for one of the things set before us. And in a world of proliferating options, we tend to experience and interpret our own free will increasingly more and more that way. One of the ways that we tend to think of our freedom or free will in uh, our contemporary context is that this ability to opt is unguided. It's not guided by rational norms or by truth or anything like that. You simply are able, or free as we say, to opt as you please, to opt according to desire or passion or whatever it may be in terms of your appetites. So it's unguided ability to opt for something. And furthermore, this unguided ability to opt for one thing or another is considered sacred. Now, sometimes that terminology is used, the sacredness of this interior ability to opt, but uh, in an increasingly agnostic, 
or atheistic society that sees uh, almost nothing as sacred or doesn't even want to use the term sacred, uh, it's sometimes just said to be the most intimately personal or something like that, something that, that is at the heart of our very being as persons. Okay? On this understanding of free will, our norms, laws, uh, any attempt to guide action or guide our free choices is usually understood as external, coming from without. It's an imposition, usually with some kind of authority or power behind it, and it's considered a threat. A threat precisely to that sacred space, we could call it, within, or that intimately personal um, interior place where we opt as, as we wish for one thing or another in the field of options. And to go even further, not only are norms and laws or uh, principles, moral principles, considered external impositions or threats, but we tend to think of this freedom or free will as the ability to make of myself absolutely whatever I want. Absolutely whatever I want. So unlimitedness seems to be an essential feature of free will as we experience it and interpret it in our contemporary context. Now, one place to show that this is not just a philosophical game or, or a thought experiment in the abstract or just simply a classroom and theoretical discussion, there are places where this understanding of freedom has been enshrined in law by political power. And one place where it seems to be most evidently at play is in the famous case, Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1993, which contains the following passage that many people, not just conservatives, find rather mysterious or mystifying even. It goes like this, quote, this is the Supreme Court, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state, end quote. So what is at the heart of liberty or freedom or free will? It's the right to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That is what we could call an understanding of freedom as absolutely unlimited autonomy, okay? Uh, that's how it's understood. Okay, just to show that my description of freedom or its properties is that I gave was not just a, a kind of thought experiment. That's how actual people with political power think about it and have attempted to make normative in our society. But let's step back from that experience. Uh, we could say our ordinary way of thinking about freedom as we, we experience it or interpret it in our society as this ability, unguided ability to opt and make up one's own uh, make of oneself whatever we want. Let's think about its properties in, a, in another way. Let's listen to St. Thomas Aquinas and the tradition of which he's part. What are some of the properties of our free will that are pointed out in that tradition or understanding of things? The first thing we can say about 
human beings or our, our free agency, more specifically, is that it is ordered to our overall well-being, or it's ordered to happiness, okay? All human beings by nature desire or are inclined towards happiness, towards the fulfillment of our very being. The understanding is that we are beings of desire, beings of love, many loves, many appetites, but one overarching appetite, one overarching love, which is the desire for happiness. Happiness here is not understood as just a feeling um, or a mood or a sentiment or an affective configuration. It's understood as a kind of overall well-being. Overall well-being, meaning our whole being as humans is somehow brought to fulfillment or realization. Uh, we can think of our end, our telos, as human beings, our final end, if that's happiness. And we understand happiness not just as a feeling or a sentiment, but as our overall well-being. How do we understand overall well-being now? We can understand that in terms of human nature. That's how St. Thomas does it, following not only Aristotle but others. Here's a human being, you or I. We'll have to qualify this in a minute because it starts out making it look rather individualistic, whereas overall well-being is a much more uh, social situation. It's not just an individual's well-being. It's just overall social well-being for the human race as a whole. Okay? Um, the individual has a certain nature, a first nature. Our first nature is that of being human, as distinct from being dogs, cats, or things of other natures. Okay? And our nature has certain propensities and requirements written into it by nature. And not just for human beings, but for other uh, animals as well. Okay? So perhaps we could agree up front that there are certain things that fulfill natures and, or serve the well-being, the overall fulfillment and realization of those natures. And there are certain things that, what? subvert those natures, undermine them, uh, warp them, destroy them, basically. So if we feed uh, dog food to a cat or cat food to a dog or the wrong kinds of things to a fish, then basically the things don't flourish. They're undermined, they're subverted, they're destroyed in certain ways. Fire, as it were, is destructive of the nature of an individual tree we can say that it doesn't cause it to flourish as such. Okay, so it undermines it. Things are called poisons because there are certain types of nutrients that actually undermine, uh, warp and destroy things according to the natures that they have. You can poison a cat, you can poison a dog, uh, you can do things that subvert or undermine their, their overall well-being, their flourishing. Likewise, similar things happen to human beings or can happen in us, to our, uh, to our lives, the way that we proceed to our persons. We can choose things, or we, let's say there are certain things, let's just put it vaguely at first, that can fulfill our nature, 
and lead us towards overall well-being. And there are certain things that can divert us, undermine it, take us away, um, or warp us in such a way that we don't arrive at overall well-being. Okay? That's the basic large picture that we get in Thomas Aquinas. Now, there's an important point to make here that there's a significant distinction between animals and human beings precisely about this picture. So the picture we have here is very general. It can apply to human beings. It can apply to animals. Uh, animals less than human beings, we could say. The brutes, as the old expression is in, in the writings of Aquinas. Uh, the animals that are not human beings, they make their way from a kind of initial condition, which they have their first nature, to overall well-being, and they make that their way by instinct, okay, by instinct. Now, St. Thomas and Aristotle are both quite well aware that not all individual animals make their way towards their overall well-being. They don't always do that. What he says, though, is that they do so always or for the most part. Nature works always or for the most part. So always or for the most part, animals make their way towards uh, their overall well-being, okay? Uh, understood socially regarding their whole species, okay? Always or for the most part, they do so. He's quite well aware that here and there, and maybe in certain circumstances by chance on a large scale, they can fail to arrive at their overall well-being. Certain intervening factors uh, by chance can impede them from doing so, okay? He's quite well aware of that. So nothing in his account of these matters requires, requires absolute universality. Just as animals make their way towards well, their overall well-being by instinct, human beings, too, are ordered towards, we're inclined towards, we have a propensity towards our overall well-being, but we move towards it not by instinct alone, not by impulse alone, not by inclination alone, but by free choice, but by free choice. That's the, the distinction between human beings and our journey towards our overall well-being and the journey of animals other than human beings or less than human beings. We make our way by free choice. There's another point, we can, another property of our free choice that we can point out regarding this, this matter making our way towards the, our happiness by free choice. And that is that when we do so, in our journey towards our overall well-being, or our end, as we make our way by free choice, we run into two problems. The first problem is the problem of counterfeit goods, we can call them. The problem of counterfeit goods, okay? What is free choice? For, for Thomas Aquinas, free choice is regarding these means or ways to the end. These means or ways to the end are the matter for free choice for us. And along the way, we can run into counterfeit goods. There are certain things that look like they will be the essential ingredients of happiness, but they're not really. They, they seem so but they're not. So, for, for example, with a child eating a massive amount of candy may seem, it really does seem, 
uh, like it's going to make them happy, like it's an essential ingredient. Uh, and so they might choose that as the way to happiness, choose that action of eating just this gigantic bowl of candy or something as if it's going to make them happy. It will seem that way, okay? It's a counterfeit good. Or, I mean, uh, certainly, you know, you've been drawn in or seduced by counterfeit goods at various times in your life. There are certain things you just thought, if I just buy this, if I just have this piece of technology, if I just have this outfit, if I just get to go on this vacation, then uh, that will be so satisfying, so fulfilling, I'll just really, and then you, you do it, you might even make the effort uh, to, to undertake this activity, you do it, and then when you reflect upon it afterwards, you realize that was just not really um, all that satisfying. <laughs> it just wasn't, I was, I was duped, okay? Counterfeit goods. That's the first problem we, we have or need to consider when we think about our free will. We run into to counterfeit goods. There's also a second problem that we can point out, and it's the problem of, we could say, self-enslavement. That we start out with a certain kind of ability to choose, but that ability to choose can go one of two directions. It can go in the direction of becoming perfected. It can be developed and matured or it can go in the direction of being undermined and lost in various degrees. So you may think, for example, of someone who has a drug addiction. When someone chooses heroin for the first time, they set off on a road to increasingly more profound uh, enslavement or compulsion towards the use of heroin. And it starts to seem good to them more and more and more to choose that along the way, to continue to choose heroin and to such an extent that it can become an overriding good and can cause them uh, that perception or drag them, we might say, into thinking these other things like stealing, uh, selling myself into prostitution or things like that, that would be actually good to do. Why? Because then I can have the money to buy heroin, okay? And there's a kind of enslavement there where the person has an extreme difficulty in seeing something, uh, seeing getting out of heroin as a good way to proceed or getting free of the perceptions that stealing or prostituting oneself is a good thing, okay? Because of the grip that heroin has on the person. The person has become, by use of the, of the heroin, someone to whom heroin usage just seems really good and to whom stealing or prostituting oneself seems good for the sake of heroin. Okay? So there's a problem of self-enslavement. We can become enslaved to various patterns of action along the way. So to sum up, then, our free will seems to be open to development or open to warping in such a way that we can either become more free or we can become more warped. What would be an ex if the heroin addict is an example of someone becoming more enslaved or more warped so that they find it harder and harder and harder to choose what is truly good, what would be an example of someone 
whose freedom is developed in a good way, someone who becomes increasingly more free, we can consider the example of someone who grows in good eating habits. So if a child starts out early in life thinking, oh yes, eating a bowl of candy would be really, really awesome, let's just do it, uh, and gives himself to that, to that appetite or that impulse, okay, that's gonna set off a certain trajectory of development. But through guidance, through education, through the enunciation of norms and principles that educate the desire to eat, the child can grow gradually into eating the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And as the child grows in that ability to do so, he or she develops a habit of eating the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And when that habit is formed, it becomes increasingly easier to do so. And things that are truly good, things that are truly going to lead to overall well-being, actually seem good and are able to be chosen with a kind of peace and ease that we would characterize as freedom, okay? Whereas the heroin addict, choosing a life without heroin, without theft, without prostitution, what we would say the life that is the overall well-being, that seems bad or <laughs> seems impossible. That's why we would call that a kind of slavery. Okay. Those are some properties of our, of our free will overall. Let's now get into the, the essence of it. What is all that, that whole story I was just telling you, what does that reveal about our, our nature? What does that reveal about the constitution of human beings or our free agency? I can only give you a kind of overall summary story at this, uh, in this context, but I just want to let you know that this could be developed for basically whole courses, okay? We could have whole courses on what I'm about to go through, okay? So let's do it in sort of fast and simple terms. The way that Thomas Aquinas thinks of us is that we have uh, two capacities or two powers in our nature that are distinctive of us as human beings, okay? We have intellect and will. Those are the two powers of the soul that are distinctive or characteristic of human beings as such. He would be opposed and is a is opposed, we could say. He would be opposed to any view that thinks of human reason or intellect as differing from the animals just in degree. He thinks there's a difference in kind between human reason and the capacities of the animals and likewise our will. What is intellect? We could say it's the power to know the truth, the capacity to know truth. But not just any kind of truth where it's just factual truth of the kind that, say, David Hume would recognize, but precisely to know the truth about the good. One of the things that distinguishes the human intellect from the operations of higher animals is that Aquinas thinks we have a concept of goodness in general. The animals don't have a concept of goodness in general. They're drawn to goods. They have inclinations or uh, instincts towards goods. But goodness is a notion they don't have, okay? Like the universal good, the whole good. They don't have that notion of things. Whereas human beings do have that notion. We have the notion of just goodness. 
we can say, what do, you, what do you ultimately want? I want goodness. I want all that is good. It's goodness as such. That's what would make me happy. That's what would fulfill us. That's what would give us this overall well-being to have goodness just as such. Goodness. The animals don't have such a notion. We do. And we could, one definition we could give of wisdom, it's not just Aquinas' definition, it's really found most deeply in Augustine, of wisdom. A definition of wisdom, that wisdom is somehow this ability to understand what's truly good for human beings. Okay? That's what we could say. It's the the ability to understand what's really going to lead us to our, our final end as distinct from what's going to divert us or take us away or undermine it, okay? So an understanding of what's going to be truly good for us as human beings. That's the intellect. Now there's also will, which is another power of the soul that we have, distinctive of the animals. And we can understand this as, and here's where I want to be really careful, I really want you to take note of this. For Aquinas, will is the power to love, the capacity to love. Because we tend to think of will, first off, as a kind of power or executive function. That goes back to that experience of freedom that we have that I was talking about earlier, this ability to opt one for one thing or another, or to execute a plan, to execute a project. That is one of the acts of a free will as such, but that's not will itself for Aquinas. For Aquinas, will is the, ability, the, the power to love. And all human beings have within us written into our nature a hunger, we could say a love, for what is good. Now I want to be careful, we have to say it's for what we apprehend as good. Because will is able to love both what is truly good and what merely appears to be good. We can love both. We love those counterfeit goods because they present themselves under aspects that are enticing and capture our will to some extent or in some way. They draw us, they summon us. That new technology exercises an appeal, okay? That outfit exercises an appeal. That vacation exercises a certain appeal over the will. Okay? By virtue of how it appears at first to our intellect, within our intellect. What's the point of having an intellect and a will? Okay? At least regarding the question of action or freedom. We have an intellect that knows the truth or can know the truth about what is good. We have a will that loves what we apprehend as good, the point is to choose what is truly good, as distinct from what's a counterfeit good or an apparent good. So this is very interesting then. The way that St. Thomas understands a free will is that it's always already, we could say, essentially related to, a true, to the true good. That's its point. That's its talos. That's its end. The point or the purpose, the goal of a free will, is to choose what is truly good. 
how, dis how different that is from the understanding of will that you have from our Planned Parenthood quote, where at the heart of liberty is the right to define, to make. Okay, it's free will viewed under the lens of techne, right? I make of myself whatever I want. To make up your own understanding of, of the world, of the universe, of life. So it's, it's, a, it's a making power, it's a manufacturing power almost, okay? That's where you end, I think, if you think of it as just this raw power to opt for things that are set before us, okay? Where Aquinas, the free will is always already related to what's true good. It's interiorly in, in reference to the true good or what's gonna make us happy. We could give a definition of free will as follows. It's not in Aquinas, but I think it, it captures a lot of what is in Aquinas. Free will is the ability to choose according to wisdom and love what is truly good. Free will is the ability to choose according to wisdom and love what is truly good. That's what it is. That's what a free will is. What is freedom? Freedom is not just the same as a free will. Freedom is a property of the free will. It's a perfection of a free will. When a person has, by free will, chosen what is truly good again and again, then the person's freedom grows because the virtues that perfect a free will grow and develop within. And the ability to choose the right things, the right time, the right way, for the right reasons, easily, peacefully, and joyfully, that grows. And that's what freedom is. It's that property of a free will. But likewise, if, if by our free will we choose counterfeit goods repeatedly or self-enslaving courses of action, then our freedom is diminished, even though the free will remains as a power or a capacity, we should say, of the soul. Okay? The freedom is diminished. It becomes a kind of broken free will. We can, we, can we can grow into that, right? The heroine's free will has fundamentally been warped, become broken in some way. Okay? In order to grow into freedom, what do we need? We don't start out at the beginning of our journey towards the overall well-being. We don't start out with pure freedom. We do start out with a free will. And we have, from the beginning, certain principles that will lead us into uh, overall well-being, which includes freedom. <clears throat> I don't know if you caught that real quick. I said one of the ways we should think about it is that part of our end, part of our happiness, is freedom. This is one of the ingredients of our end our happiness. Freedom understood as a perfection of a free will. Okay? A life of slavery is an unhappy life. A free life is a happy life. So when we choose and choose our way towards the overall well-being, we need to be choosing in ways that will promote our development of our own free will in a good way. What are the principles that we need from the beginning 
of our journey to make our way towards happiness and towards freedom. Aquinas thinks of us as being equipped from the beginning with several important principles, we could say, or constituent factors of our being that set us up to journey towards freedom, journey towards what is true and good by free choice. The first thing we have is something in our intellect that we have up front, he calls synderesis. So the tradition calls synderesis, it comes down to him. It's very closely related to what the previous speaker was talking about. We could say initial conceptions or an initial understanding of what is truly good. We need to have that up front because we don't start out as philosophers. We don't start out as scientists. We don't start out life or our journey uh, towards happiness fully equipped with a complete understanding of what's going to make us happy. What we have is a kind of initial rudimentary understanding of what's going to get us to our end. Or what we could say, an initial rudimentary understanding of what is right and wrong, good and evil. That's called synderesis. It's general. It's vague. It's common to all human beings. And most importantly, it's subject to formation or development or growth. Okay? So we don't start out with a complete worked out moral code in our mind. We start out with broad, general, vague understandings. St. Thomas thinks that one of the, the, thinks that the basic principle everyone has in mind up front from the beginning is do good and avoid evil. Or good is that which is to be done, evil is that which is to be avoided, okay? That's something we have up front, but obviously you can see that can be filled in with a lot of detail, okay, about the moral life. And that's what ethics or practical philosophy is meant to do. What ethics, practical philosophy, or instruction in the good life is meant to do is fill out the picture of how we move from where we are into the situation of overall well-being, happiness, how we become free. So for Aquinas then, moral principles, laws, norms, are not simply external impositions or threats. What they are is critical instruction, critical pedagogy that we need in order to develop our understanding of what is truly good or develop our wisdom so that we can choose from within accordingly what will actually lead us to true happiness and not down the road of counterfeit goods and self-enslavement. So moral principles then, far from being an external threat or imposition, are necessary for the development of our free agency. They serve our well-being. They help us. They promote or enhance us as we make our way by choice towards what's truly good. There's another capacity we have in our reason that's very important in Aquinas' story, which is our conscience. Conscience, we could say, is this act of reason or an ability of reason 
to apply what we know by synderesis to concrete actions and circumstances. So for example, we might know by synderesis, do good and avoid evil, okay. Some very basic, very elementary moral education or practical philosophy might lead you to an understanding of the norm. It's wrong to kill an innocent person, okay? So that's a, a more intermediate kind of moral norm that we now understand. But now you might be faced with a very particular situation in the concrete. You might have a relative, for example, who's in the hospital, who's in the process of dying, is on a ventilator, and, you may, and the question may come up, should we remove the ventilator? And you have to ask, is that an act of killing an innocent person or not? And reason has to take the general principle, it's wrong to kill an innocent person, and apply it and make a judgment. Is that the norm that applies in these circumstances? And a great deal depends in the particular uh, situation on what exactly is going on. Is the person already in the process of dying? Is there a chance of recovery? Is there not a chance of recovery? Is the person not dying? All those are questions that are morally relevant in the situation. And it belongs to conscience to make a judgment about what to do here and now given the principles that we're aware of and the understanding that we have. But here's the thing. We all are aware that it's possible at times to know what the right thing to do is and to see what should be done here and now. Our conscience may clearly bid us do this, avoid that in particular, but we still have a difficulty actually executing it. So we need to grow in a particular virtue or disposition called prudence, which is the ability or the disposition to apply, not only to apply what we know, but to actually carry out and execute what we know by virtue of synderesis and conscience in practice, okay, in actual concrete circumstances. And as our prudence develops and grows, so too will our freedom, okay, overall. That ability to live in the, our overall well-being as, yeah, free agents who are virtuous, able to choose what is good easily, peacefully, and joyfully. So prudence is this critical virtue that's sort of at the center of all the whole life of the virtues. Because it, it's a, a virtue of our practical reasoning governing our actual practices. All of this leads to a certain kind of story that we can tell. And the story goes like this, that as we choose our way from the beginning of our life, according to Cinderesis, conscience, our, uh, the stage of moral development in our understanding that we have, the degree of prudence that we have at any one point in time, as we choose our way towards what is good, we are acting towards a certain second nature. We choose our second natures. We don't choose our first nature. We're human beings, constituted by intellect and will, having loves and con uh, synderesis conscience and the desire to grow in the virtues so that we can become free. All of that we have, that's part of our 
our first nature, okay? But as we choose one way or another, we shape our second nature. By stealing, we become thieves. By lying, we become liars. By, you know, uh, volunteering and giving of time to other people, let's say to serve the poor or something like that, we become generous. We become, yeah, increasingly more disposed to give, to love. As we perform acts of kindness in word or deed, we become kind. And we choose our second nature along the way. And our second nature can be one where we are free, having that, that property of a perfected free will, and in the good, loving what is truly good, living according to what is truly good, or we can have a second nature that is somewhere, we could say, outside of this picture, where we've chosen, over the course of a lifetime, a whole series of counterfeit goods. And we have acquired a second nature that has warped us and, and undermined us as human beings. Just as a closing illustration of this, I'll leave you with one particular uh, scene from a movie that's pretty classic that kind of illustrates this whole, this whole picture. Surely you've seen The Godfather. Uh, if you haven't, you should. Uh, one of the greatest movies of all times, universally agreed, or almost universally agreed. The closing scene at the end of the first uh, Godfather, where you have the Don. Do you, do you remember the scene? He's in the garden with his, uh, with his grandchild. And this is after a lifetime of choosing, is freely choosing, to, to murder, to kill, to steal, to embezzle, to lie, to defraud, to threaten, to after a lifetime of doing what, well, what mafiosi do, he's sitting in, in the garden there at the end. And he's, he's kind of talking to himself and he's looking back over his life. And what does he say to himself? He says, I lived a good life. I did the right thing. I wasn't like all those other people who worked, you know, legit jobs and all that. I, 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 I lived a good life, okay? It's a powerful, powerful scene because it's a, it's a great lesson in what we can become. Here's a guy who seems to see evil as good and see a life that the rest of us would see as a bad life as a good life. And it seems good to him. And there's no repentance there. There's no repentance, at least none observable, from the scene of the movie. And then what happens? He has a heart attack and he dies. That's a possibility for a human life on Aquinas' own principles. What happened? You had a human being who had intellect and will and the capacity to choose what seemed good. He had an initial understanding of what was good, and my sense is that it was educated to some extent. He had a conscience. 
But he continually and repeatedly chose, not according to what conscience pronounced, but according to other considerations that came before his mind, based on whatever, passion or other considerations, other sources. And by so doing, he chose, perhaps unwittingly, to become a certain kind of person. And that's what he became. He became the Don. You know? um, that's possible for a human life. Or we can think of another human being who went another way. You can think of someone like a Mother Teresa. Who? Same first nature. Same principles. Intellect, will. Understanding. Conscience. Loves. And she freely chose according to those principles within. Now, of course, we want to say that God's grace is an additional principle that was given to her as well. Uh, and she, she became a, a very different kind of person, devoting herself to loving to, and became, what, filled with generosity, kindness, love, charity. Uh, yeah, that's a possibility for a human life as well. And both of those possibilities, as it were, are set before our free will. It seems to me like the Don was a slave of the choices he had made, or Mother Teresa was fundamentally and profoundly free. She was free because she repeatedly chose the true good and gave herself to it. So we'll leave it at that, and we'll take questions. <laughs>